Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Welcome to the third episode of Engendered Reflections, where we look back on our series of family court episodes with a guest. My friend Michael is here with us today to join in that conversation. Currently, Michael leads a workforce development program at a New York City community-based organization. He trains youth and young adults in building job skills and assists them with finding and retaining long-term employment. Michael and I used to work together serving vulnerable and economically disadvantaged populations in New York City, and we share that common lens of understanding of how gender and intimate partner violence serve as barriers to achieving education and or professional success. Welcome, Michael, to our third episode of Reflections. Hi, Terry. Glad to be back. So in today's episode, we're going to be looking back together to episode 12, our conversation with Tom Digby on men, masculinity, and heterosexual love. Episode 13 with Alan Corbin of the National Organization of Men Against Sexism and his conversation with me about male allyship and feminism. Episode 14 with Ben Atherton Zeman on teaching feminism and undoing sexism through drama. Episode 15 with Dr. Tanya Leslie on diversity and inclusion in children's texts. And episode 17, my conversation with Autumn on diversity, inclusion, and acceptance and her journey as a transgender woman. So, Michael. Yes. Starting with episode 12, I think that was something I'm curious to hear what your reflection is and recollection is since you and I were actually together when we recorded that episode with Tom. I was going to mention that that this is the one and only episode where I was actually present during uh, Tom's presentation. So Tom, by the way, for those of you who haven't met Tom before, he is such a very, very kind. He seems really nice and I like him. And and he's also very kind and smart and he has a lot of very interesting things to share about men, masculinity, and heterosexual love that came out of his book, Love and War, How Militarism Shapes Sexuality and Romance. Right. Was there was there anything, Michael, about that conversation that he and I had that looking back the second time listening struck you and that really resonated with you? Well, actually, after I had the, the I saw and I met him, I had a conversation with my father about about this subject in general, I think that it's it's something that affects all of us, and and I don't realize how much it affected me until I look back. And so when when I talk to my family members, especially somebody like my father, who I learned a lot from, a lot of these things become so normal that you don't realize they're having this huge impact on you. Like he said. It's built into our culture, right? He used the word cultural programming. So I'm not sure if he created that word, but it's, it seems to describe exactly how, how we came up with it. And in what ways do you feel that your masculinity and gender identity was culturally programmed into you? Well, one of the things that he mentioned was how we are programmed to feel insulted if we're called anything feminine and how everything feminine is bad. And if you were called something, if you were called gay, I felt very insulted. I used to feel very insulted back then. Nowadays, it's not, it's not an insult. It's not anything that's bad. And it's something that I've learned over time, uh, being exposed to not just this, but I think in general, the environment that I'm in, I, I believe it's cultivated a more accepting kind of environment. And, and, and when I look back at it, I do still see other people who say something like one of the things that he said was no homo, like certain people say, say it like, oh, it's, it's bad to be, to, to, to share your feelings or because that's, that's kind of bad. And for men to share, for men to share, to, for men to share feelings. Mm-hmm. And it's, and I'm not saying that it's completely gone in my environment. Like the other day I went to see a movie and I got emotional and then I caught myself thinking, 
you know, why, why am I afraid to, to, to show emotion? It's, it's just human to show emotion. I shouldn't, I, I, I shouldn't be embarrassed of it, but it's still, it, it's very hard to change. Uh, I would say. So if, if it's difficult for me to change, I'm pretty sure that it's a lot of people are going to resist this. So what was your conversation with your father? Like, how did, how did that conversation start? And did he have any insights to share with you that was surprising? I have to be selective on what it, what it is that, that I'm going to share just because it, it deals with my mother who, who sees things a, a different way. And since my father is still, he's, he's still, I would say, old fashioned. He's, he's progressive in many ways, but he's, he's old fashioned in many other ways. And I just pointed a, a certain aspect of their relationship, which I feel that he needs to work on. And at first he was very resistant and he 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 blamed not just my mother but women in general for he, for the difference in how women behave and i was pointing that you know men also are emotional and men also do the same things and it, it it's like for example gossip is not something that's specifically for women women aren't the only ones who gossip there's plenty of men who do that so so it was one of i just i just don't want to be too specific on on, on the exact conversation because, you know. Yeah, sure. I understand. Mm-hmm. So basically the gist of his, of your conversation is that you're, you were able to move him, move the needle in some way, do you think? To get him to open up and think and look at the example that you offered I don't know differently? If, I don't know if it's, if it's a long lasting, oh my gosh moment where, where he completely did a 180. But I was, I was telling him at one point in the conversation that, He's trying to control the opinion of, in this case, the woman, and you're continuing to do this. And then when he realized that that's exactly what he was doing, he was like, okay, okay. And then he, he, he paused a moment. And I think in that pause, he, he reflected and, and, and really uh, thought about what it is that I was saying. It's, so that's a small victory. We should celebrate that. <laughs> we can call that a victory. Sure. Yes. What about um, you personally with regard to heterosexual love and and how your gender identity or your masculinity has informed your choices, your behaviors, your decisions regarding your romantic relationships? Do you think it has highlighted some of you know the regrets or the positive decisions you've made in your life or otherwise? I've in terms of my romantic relationship, yeah, I, I've had a lot of regrets, but are they related to your gender identity and how that's played out in the in the roles that you each had? I, I can't really say. For me personally, I, I can't really I can't really think of uh, oh ways I, in which oh, it's wa- ways in which it, it, I mean I'm sure they are like it, expectations for gender roles, expectations for how each side is supposed to each person in the relationship is supposed to behave or communicate with one another. Or not communicate. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I mean, I feel that in almost every single relationship, communication is extremely important. Not just uh, romantic relationships, but just any relationship of any kind. And because gender does affect communication in such a profound way, I'm sure that it, it has, of course, it, it, it has affected it. And I've, I'm sure I've made plenty of mistakes. I just can't think of an example where I can say, hey, this is a clear indication of my sexism ca- causing, tr- I mean, I'm, I'm sure it has, but I just I can't think of an example right now. Hmm, okay, but I would say that uh, in other aspects of my life, I I, I have I have I, I, I and I have and I continue to make um, small mistakes. Like uh, the other day, we were playing a game uh, with one of my students, and I said something. I, I assumed that. We're playing a game. I don't know if you 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 remember this game called Loaded Questions. Uh-huh. And one of the answers were, "I would like I would like to see my girlfriend's face every single day." Right. That was one of the answers. And my first thought was like, "Oh, well, that eliminates half of us because half of us were female, half of us were male. So I'm assuming that it was a male who said my girlfriend." But it turns out that it wasn't. It was a female talking about her her girlfriend who was also a female. And I, you know, that's heterosexism. heterosexism. Uh huh. So for our listeners, Loaded Questions is a board game where you have a group of people, one person draws a card, a question is asked, all the other people in the group respond to that question. And the person who draws the card has to guess and match each answer to each person. 
in the group. Right. And Michael, I guess you're saying that when you heard that answer, you you were in your deductive reasoning, right. basing your deduction on wrong assumptions, which is that the person who said girlfriend, who was referencing girlfriend, had right. to be a heterosexual male. Right, right. That's what I what I thought at the moment, but mm. um, I was wrong. Right. Interesting. And what about the next episode, episode 13 with Alan Corbin of the National Organization of Men Against Sexism? I loved my conversation with him with regard to how he addresses male allyship to feminism. And also for our listeners, if you're not following Nomas on Facebook, please, I highly recommend that you do. They have a great group where Alan is one of the facilitators and he shares you know, the most up-to-date, interesting articles around what's happening in the country and sometimes around the world with regard to examples of sexism and misogyny in personal life, in the news, in policy. And he has really great reflections on connecting those individual incidents to the larger problems that we're having systemically. But anyway, getting back to you, what right. what are your what were your thoughts about male allyship and feminism? So my first thought was just like Tom, Alan really did just mirror a lot of the things that he said, especially in the differences in that cultural programming, how men do see things differently. And one of the things that I've noticed is that he will specifically talk to men about the situations not and focus their energy on what they can do as opposed to saying, hey, well, this is what women should should, should do or this is the law that, that should affect women in this way. So specifically on the stance of, uh, I, I believe it was prostitution and pornography, how he feels that we should direct that conversation towards men, that we should make sure that men are not allowed to buy women's bodies. So that's that's something that I appreciate it instead of saying, you know, women shouldn't do prostitution. It's right, not. Right. So yeah. instead of punishing the seller, punish the buyer. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I think that makes sense too with regard to, in general, Alan's other comments around feminism and the need for men to be allies in the fight for feminism and for gender equality. Because as all of our guests and especially Tom, you know, when he started out the conversation around the, what's at stake, everything is at stake. The future of heterosexual relationships is at stake. Absolutely. Uh, is what Tom, I recall saying. Yeah. And if we don't look upon one another differently, then we won't be able to have healthy, productive, happy relationships with one another. Right. That reminds me of one of the things that Tom said about how certain men will depend on a, a, a woman's, I guess, ability to handle the emotional. He mentioned how he they, they can't even articulate how is it that they feel. And so when they lose that, when a woman initiates the end of a relationship, that's one of the things that men have tr- struggle with, right? So it's something that, that, that I'm glad that this is being brought out. So we can have that conversation and men will feel more uh, comfortable speaking about how they feel and, and, and how to handle certain situations, take part, equal part in that responsibility. Yeah. And I also liked what you said, Michael, about how it's pivotal for men to take an active role in the fight and sexism and misogyny because the impact is predominantly on women. Right. But the cause is predominantly by men. By men. Right. And so it's it's like saying, you know, if someone's a burglar, why is the responsibility and the, all of us to have to ensure that our homes are properly secured? Why can't we also teach and incentivize people not to burglarize, to right. create an environment for people who have living wage jobs and education and and not the need to have to seek to have their needs filled through other people. Right. Right. So yeah, that's true. I never thought now thinking about that. If, if for example, we had higher living wages and, and and the ability to pay for things, uh, maybe crime would, would go down and that's, that's, it's all connected. So that's, that's, that's another reason why I believe all of your guests at this point have said that 
basically everything. Everything is being affected by misogyny and sexism. So that's 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 something that's really important. One of the other things that I wanted to bring up in uh, Alan's conversation was um, the impact of religion. Um, when you were having a, a conversation with him, you were talking about how, I believe in evangelicals during the election did vote mostly Republican. So a lot of people, I'm sure, it, it seems hypocritical to, to, to say that you are Christian or you identify as that, but you, there's so much else that that brings along with it. I thought that that was interesting, and I like his answer that he was saying. Well, well, you said, "Hey, listen, um, if you support these atrocities, then aren't you, then does that not make you Christian?" And his his response was, "No, this is who you are, and it's just that you have to work against these things." I thought that that was profound. What he said. I, I also want to add. Alan said. Because he he has a master's of arts in theology, and he's also the assistant register at Fuller Theological Seminary. So he's very much immersed in an environment and community where religion and spiritual practices and beliefs are talked about, you know, constantly and within his community. Mm-hmm. And when I asked him that question, and I posed to him the opportunity to make a essentially value judgment against people that they had written about through the NOMAS website, people, evangelicals, who through that NOMAS article I referenced were essentially responsible for the rise and election of Trump. He said, I I asked him specifically, are they really Christian? Right. And he said, it's not for him to judge. Right. Which I thought was very interesting and so that I think is actually a very Christian answer where he's, he's, it's not for him to judge, but so long as he can, he's going to take an active role in participating in dialogue to facilitate openness and conversation and connection. Right, right. So I, I like that he wouldn't blame the religion for the choices that they made. He focused more on what it is that their values are. I mean, I'm assuming that the major, one of the major reasons why so many evangelicals or Christian people uh, chose to vote for Trump was probably because of the abortion issue, which it, I, I think that's one of the biggest things that, that, that they, that they see as wrong. And maybe that's, that's what I'm going to go with. Why assuming they, they, they do see Trump and they do realize that he is not the most ethically, clean person. So I, I, I do think they do see that, but I think abortion maybe that's that's probably which why. which is really ironic because abortion is just one way in which patriarchy and our male supremacy enacts controls over women's bodies. Right. It's the same, you know, as policing what we wear and judging women who are raped or or sexual assault victims based on what they wear and somehow diminishing the impact or the veracity of their experience because of what they wear. See, you know, all of this is about policing women's bodies. No, right. And that's that's how we see it. But I don't think the argument is presented to them in that way. It's a lot of fear mongering and a lot of like, oh, you're very bad that 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 all that is is child killing. And then I believe that they, they accused Plant parenthood for killing all they, kinds well, of all things kinds of, for selling oh, fetuses. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and so all kinds uh, some of, of them were not true. Some of this stuff was was completely made up. But all this is fear mongering that really frightens a lot of people. So out of fear, that's I, I'm assuming that this is one of the reasons why people choose to vote Republican. Yeah, yeah, and and I think just you know to to continue on the point of control of women's bodies as. Um, one tactic that's used to control women in general mm-hmm. and our livelihoods and our liberty is through the uh, creation of women's images and what's allowed and what's not allowed right. and how our images are consumed. So NOMAS is actually an abolition, is abolitionist on their stance towards pornography, which means they don't believe in any kind of pornography. They they believe that, or prostitution, that regulating prostitution, for example, even though you know some might argue that 
it creates opportunities for greater safety and and lowers health risks for the sex workers and it creates economic choice for sex workers. Nomas doesn't believe that and believes that any kind of sex work, whether it's prostitution or pornography, devalues women, devalues the image of women, puts men and women in a transactional relationship that ultimately is harmful right. to all of us, not just women, but men, and, how, and our relationships and how we see each other and interact with one another. And so that, that I think I want to call attention to because there are, this is an ongoing deba- debate amongst feminists. There right. are some feminists who are not abolitionists who are advancing the regulation of think, sex work. I think one of their major arguments, which you guys did bring up while you were speaking to, was that certain women do do this out of their own choice. Like this is something that they they choose to do. So for example, there are people who are exhibitionists and they'll do that because that's something that they want to. And essentially by doing this, it's something that, for example, for an exhibitionist isn't necessarily doing this for the money. So I, the the response was that you would... That that's a small percentage. That this is true, this is done mostly to devalue the image, I believe, of, of women. Then that's what you were saying. So that's that that would that would be their argument, is what. And I think also it would be really hard to identify what is free will in a situation where, in all of our society, there is no economic parity. There is no economic justice, you know, by gender or by race, and so there is. You know, there we are still grappling as women with the gender wage gap, mm-hmm. and and so there's it's really hard to pinpoint at what point someone's self perception of their autonomy and agency to exercise free will, so to speak, around if and when and how they choose to capitalize on using their body for economic gain. If that is something that is, you're saying it's hard I, to identify, hard to well, tell. Well, if it's also it's hard to identify if that choice is actually free or not, because we're so consumed in this larger rhetoric of and culture and you know media and all these systems that intersect to give us the illusion that there's freedom. And when there really isn't any, it's it's like you're choosing between a rock and a hard place. And so how, how much of a difference is that? Right. What about our next episode, episode 14 with Ben Atherton Zeman, the comedic performer who right. uses humor to teach feminism and undo sexism? Yeah. You, you actually had the opportunity to see him live perform. Right, right. Do you remember that performance? That was, right. Uh, Yes, I remember. It was just really funny. I thought he was very entertaining even in the episode just to hear him. His, his, the voices that he makes are just very entertaining and it brings it, it brings it to a, a way that the common person can understand. And it brings it to even the people who are on the fence about some of these things where, it just brings that knowledge to them. What, so what do you think is effective about that tactic? Using Is it the humor part or is it specific to Ben's talents and skills? Part of it is, it is Ben's skills. I mean, that's one of the things that he mentioned in the podcast, how at the beginning when he didn't use the humor, he was speaking and a lot of people felt bored, but he was seeing which one of these things did the people, were the people awaken or did the people pay attention to personal stories he mentioned and when he was being funny and he was, he was talking, he, he was making it very easy to listen to. So I, I think that that tactic is extremely effective. and uh, it, it puts people at ease. It does put people at and, ease. And, not, um, and hopefully lessens their desire to be defensive or exactly. inclination to be defensive. Exactly. Exactly. By, by sort of kind of making this, this straw man of like, oh, this is what, 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 what the sexism looks like. And this is the things that we should identify as being harmful. And I think that in that, that while they're laughing at that caricature, let's say it's uh, Austin Powers, then they do see that in themselves, that they're doing the same thing or they've done the same thing or, 
Um, he even mentioned that he that Austin Powers is a character that he probably you most closely identified with in the past. So <laughs> I I do appreciate the way he uh, he brings humor and 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 this topic to especially men who who don't realize this. They 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 do this and they. And we do this. So I'm sorry, I should say we do this and we don't realize that we're doing these things. I thought what was really powerful about uh, Ben's approach also was how at the end of each workshop or presentation that he does, especially the ones where there's a lot of predominantly men in the audience, so like military installations, and sometimes you know when he when he goes to juvenile detention facilities, those kinds of places, which are not, you wouldn't think would be more as open to recognizing the internalized sexism that mm-hmm. um, the audience has, he gets them to commit by the end of the by the end of the workshop to, to be an ally. To be an ally, yeah. yeah. And I remember he said at one point that for a military installation there there was an officer or someone who asked him for a white ribbon right and they were all supposed to disassemble and his commanding officer was asking for for you know for him to leave and this man still wanted to wait for his white ribbon right. going against orders <laughs> was that did i remember that yeah, correctly yeah that's the, uh, yeah for the most part so so basically they still wanted to wait for that they still they didn't disband until they all Got that ribbon. I don't know if it was a direct order, but I, 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 that's something that, that's a beautiful story. There's, there's, there's some light there. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So, Um, so kudos to Ben and I, I wish him much success in his new journey in divinity school. And I hope that he continues to be available to engage in violence prevention work um, using humor. Yeah. I hope so because he, He's he's I, I I hope that other people can follow along in what he's doing and and this doesn't end but he's just an entertaining and a great entertainer regardless of 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 anything else but he's he's great. And what about the next episode 15 with Dr. Tanya Leslie on diversity and, and inclusion in children's texts? So I this that was also fascinating because you touched on the media and how there's certain things that we are exposed to that we think, hey, this is great. This is and, and it, like Little House on the Prairie. Now, uh, that was before my generation, so I I, I, I didn't understand everything that was going Thanks, on. Thanks, Michael. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, slightly before it was I'm like proud maybe a couple to, years <laughs> to have grown up with that show. No, no, absolutely, <laughs> and and that's great. But look, I think like for my generation, there's shows like Friends that. Now I realize and I'm like, wow, that's there's I can't believe that I didn't see this before. Like the fact that they're all white, everybody there and this is New York. Right. So you would think in New York, there's a lot of diversity, but each and every single friend was white. Even the patrons were, were, were mostly white. There were very few far and in between. And towards the later seasons, I know that they did introduce uh, characters like Charlie, who who happened to be black. But it, it's. Not not in the same way. Not like in Modern Family. No one memorable because if you ask me now, I can't remember a single person of color, as oh, yeah, even yeah. a guest. I, I'm a huge fan of the show. So yeah, so I was like, too. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was actually working in Asia during the time the show was running, and my friend were, was was able to get tapes of NBC shows mailed to her overseas. Oh wow! For so us friends- to be able, yeah, and Friends was one of them. Friends did have a lot of faults, and not just that, but there were a lot of homophobic points in, in in the show where certain characters were ridiculed if they were gay. They 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 were like, "Ah ha, very funny, gay," and it that was the only joke. Like that, that's just that's what it was. Well, yeah, there was a, I think a lot of homophobic jokes. There were. So, are you saying, Michael, that your consciousness that there wasn't a lot of diversity in that show in particular? came about after you watched it and there was no point while you were watching it where you thought to yourself, this doesn't reflect New York City. Despite the fact that I, as a, as me as an individual, I used to question everything. I, I And I still do. I, I still question everything. 
To be honest with you, growing up and seeing the show for the first time, that didn't cross my mind at all. Like not 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 even not not at all. And there were yeah, no, not at all. I think afterward, maybe now several years later is when I realized, wow, that that, that there is something up. So it, it really depends. And then looking back, back in the day there were shows that were diverse. Um, even cartoons like Captain Planet, for those of you who have heard of it, it's, it, it was a very diverse show for, it was a children's cartoon show. Unlike what, what channel? It was, it was very popular. Uh, like, like PBS? No, 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 it wasn't PBS. It was, uh, one of like, uh, yeah, one of the networks. Uh-huh. It, it was, and it was very diverse. So basically it was about fighting pollution and, and so they had these children from all over the world. Uh, one person came, was from Russia, another was from Africa, another, there was an Asian character there. One of the very few Asians on television, even if it's in a cartoon, uh, where they got together to, to, it was an environmental kind of show. Mm-hmm. But it was one of the networks, was on one of the networks. Very popular, but not as popular as, as the typical show like, like uh, DuckTales and the Disney cartoons. It wasn't a Disney cartoon. But that those shows were very rare and few and far between. So the majority of of them were didn't really had this sort of narrative that things were a certain way. They were just like this is who you were supposed to identify with, and it was you, you typically a white person, usually male. It, it, it was yeah. That was when Doctor Leslie mm-hmm. was referencing the concept of mirrors and windows, mm-hmm. and mirrors being text, whether media, TV, books, etc., that reflected back you and your lived experience versus windows where you were able to look and peek out of your lived experience and experience other people's, put yourself in other people's shoes. Mm-hmm. What were some of the text that you were growing up with that represented either a mirror or a window? Uh, let me think. In, in Dr. Leslie's terms, what was your textual lineage? I'm trying to think of some of the media that I've consumed growing up. Um, let's say something like uh, Catcher in the Rye, which, you know, it's funny. So that's, that, that had to be a, a window, obviously. Well, here's, 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 here's something that I found. I, I, I was always, when I consume literature or media or anything, I usually get into it so much that I start sort of mimicking some of the things that I see or read. So I remember I started writing like the author of A Catcher in the Rye and w- would write, and he doesn't write like you should write, right? It, it, it's a type of book that I, I guess it doesn't follow your your. It's very stream of consciousness and autobiographical. Right, right. So I would say in a book like that, something that, that, that I was very consumed with, it was, you could say it was a window. Well, I'm saying window, unless you feel, felt like you related to the character. No, I mean, I, I mean, because mirrors reflect characters and experiences that you relate to. No, yeah, I, mean, I can't. I can't think of anything right now. Recently, you went to see the film Crazy Rich Asians. Yes, which is only the second f- mainstream Hollywood film that has an all-Asian cast in 25 years, the last one being the Joy Luck Club. Um, I should say an all-Asian, Asian-American, maybe Asian diaspora cast. And so f- I have, for various reasons, not yet seen the film. Mm. And part of it has been because it's kind of like when Harry Potter came out. Okay. There were seven books to Harry Potter. Okay. and. I love the series so much that when the seventh book came, I couldn't deal with the fact that it would be the last book and it would end. I've, so I never read the second book, seventh book. Seventh book, right. I, I understand. And, and so similarly, I, I feel like I waited 25 years for, to see myself represented on film. Right. And if this is the last time, I, I don't want to see it and then have hope and then wait 25 years more. There's a level of like fear and anxiety and really pain, pain from what I had written in a recent post on Medium, pain from symbolic annihilation, mm-hmm. which is basically for people who haven't heard of the term, it's 
when it describes the absence of representation or underrepresentation of groups of people in the media, whether it be women or you know based on race, sex, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, whatever it is, and the ways in which that underrepresentation or false representation or stereotypical representation really informs the those groups of people's identity and self-image and emotional life. And so to you know Dr. Leslie's point about diversity and inclusion in children's text, it's really important growing up, not just because it helps us build healthy self-identities right. and self-images, but also, and in terms of that, be able to envision ourselves doing other things, doing good and great things, mm-hmm. but also because it helps other people see us differently too. Well, that's true. I think uh, a lot of what our opinions on other people or on other groups are, 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 are just basically formed by the media. The media gives you the narrative uh, and, and, and this is, uh, this is how we see, for example, a certain group of Asians. I think, by the way, I thought it was a great movie, but I, I, you know, the same thing happens in even, um, like a lot of these fantasy things where people who read comic books, for example, right? They feel a certain character is a certain way. And then they present it to, then then they have these Marvel movies, for example, that come out and the movies present the characters in a completely different way. So the general public has this image of how those characters are like, Oh, the character is such and such, but the comic book, the people who are really into the comic books, like, no, that's not how it is. And, and, and this person was represented wrong. And I think in the same way, we see the same thing happening with race where, if a certain group is portrayed in a certain way, then then that's that's who who the general public feels that they are. Like the, these are the bad guys. So uh, I know back in the day, a long time ago, uh, Russians were always the bad guys in Bond movies and everything. That's because of the Cold War. Because of the Cold War, right? So I, I, the American perspective on on the Russians, I believe, were probably shaped uh, by that. I'm, things are different now. But I, I, I do I do believe that movies like um, Crazy Rich Asians uh, will hopefully bring that that diversity out there, and and and, and hopefully it, it it's it, it has a positive impact, and it's making a lot of money. And you know how people who who do movies they they look at something and they see what it is that makes them money, and then they'll 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 get this. I, I feel more optimistic, I, and it seems like your point of view is a little bit more pessimistic in, in terms of, of how you feel things are going to be in the future? Like you're going to have to wait another 25 years? I don't well, think Well, I mean, so. that's just a, a, a fear. <laughs> right. I, I hope it's not true. It's certainly not true to the extent that the film just got greenlit for this, you know, the second of right. of a you know a trio. Exactly. So, um, so, so you definitely won't, it yeah. won't be the last time. So I, it's, I think our world is, is changing very slowly and without people like, you and other and everybody that we heard in the podcast, things are not going to change if no motion, no movement is made or, or steps are taken to to change people's points of views. I don't think it's going to happen. We can't just sit there idly, like you know. You have a uh, Sasha Baron Cohen who's showing a lot of political figures right now uh, what what their views are, and and the general public doesn't accept some of these things. So it, it's something that. That I, I think is changing slowly. Well, it's also a function of access because the people who he might be directing that those most targeted messages to from his most recent comedic acts are not necessarily the people who would be seeking him out, you know, as a comedic performer and consuming his media. So I, 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 I would still say it's the general so public. So he's basically no? still preaching to the choir. But it's out there. People are enraged by some of the things that he does. So it does come out on Fox where they're like, oh, how dare Sasha Baron Cohen do X, Y, Z, right? So I, at least at least people hear of it. And well, it's, it, 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 even bad publicity is still publicity and it still gets acknowledged. Well, I think what I'd like to see is that they actually go and investigate what the causes are, what prompted and propelled you know, these artists to create these these texts and and these products and what's 
the history that informed the opinions. So it's not just, you know, some, what I'm concerned about is that people will look at those snippets and then draw conclusions from it without looking at the full context of what informed the creation of it and what are, what actually happened. Right. A lot of people won't. See, like, especially when it comes to uh, like social media, my father, again, with my father, he sends me some, some of these articles sometimes. A friend of mine not too long ago sent something about, for example, something simple, completely unrelated, but it was that the, there's some spiders that are taking over and, and, and that are harmful and that, that are, that are, it's like sort of a plague now that, it, it, they, that in the United States, these spiders are, are biting people and there have been three deaths. So you could easily look it up on Snopes and it'll tell you, oh, this article is false. It's being passed around and it's in, and the pictures are of a woodland spider, which is just like a typical spider. It doesn't hurt anybody, right? So with these fake news articles, I, I do think that people are a little bit more cautious now. Or hopefully people should be a little bit more cautious on the type of media that they consume. And, and so... Even though all the, all this fake news stuff is is happening, and it's very bad, I completely agree. And it's it, 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 it's bad. I think it's good in that it brings to light some of these issues, and and it, it'll make people hopefully. I mean, not everybody. A lot of people are going to just consume their media like they normally do. But I think some of us are going to then begin to question what 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 these. What, what what kind of things were information we're reading? What is the history behind it? So why, like 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 you said, they, they'll be more informed, hopefully, or they'll question more, and that's 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 essentially what 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 we want to do. Well, let's hope so. What about the the last episode, Autumn, episode seventeen? Yeah, with Autumn. First, I want to just say, before the episode was published, I had put out on social media a picture of the gingerbread person, mm-hmm. which gave four different examples of gender and gender expression, biological sex, gender identity, gender expression, biological sex, and who you're attracted to. And then thankfully, someone responded and said, that's actually not the most up-to-date list. And and so I updated it with the gender unicorn. So I want to point that out to our listeners. The most up-to-date is gender identity, gender expression, the sex that you're assigned at birth, whom you're physically attracted to, and whom you're emotionally attracted to. So that was something that I put up because during my conversation with Autumn, this college student was talking about her coming to a realization that she was a transgender woman, she told me at the end of our conversation, I kept referring to that word as transgendered and and why it was offensive. And so that's how I came up with looking for the first the gingerbread person and then updating it with the gender unicorn. Got it. Right. So a lot of people, I believe, there's there's this whole backlash against this that they're... I, I, don't quite understand why. So there's a lot of people that maybe maybe the the amount of terms scare them, and maybe they're like, oh, that's that's too much or that's too complicated. Now, granted, it's a it it, it it's not an easy like I I don't memorize all all of the all of the uh, for example pronouns right, but it's not something that I feel people should be offended about. And it, it, I, I, over the internet. I unfortunately, not unfortunately, but I, I do cons- I do go on Reddit sometimes or Imager, and there's there's a lot of misogyny in there, and there's a lot of just ignorant people up making. Why, why do you think people are offended? I think part of it is kind of like what Tom Digby mentioned. It it could be because they feel threatened, because they feel that they're this giving this power to people. Who are not male is is threatening to to what the status quo is, and I think I think maybe out of that fear that they're somehow going to be toppled down or something. They're, like you can see that a lot in those um, those incel communities where they 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 there's there's a lot of hatred towards not just women but transgender transgender um, people in general. I think that's what it is. I, I, that's my guess, though. I can't 
I can't really say otherwise. I, I, I can't really think of any other explanation. I, I agree with that. I think that people feel threatened whenever their place in a social hierarchy becomes uncertain. Right. And in our white male supremacist patriarchy, the group that's at the top of the totem pole are cisgendered white men, right? heterosexual white men. And if you then add sexuality along this continuum, then they become uncertain as to where their place is right. in that hierarchy, what their status is. Right. And and they need to keep asserting their status and their position, which is why they, they do so through race or through gender, you know, right. a, to uh, against women or against men of color, making sure that men of color are below white men. And then men of color make sure that their position is higher than women of color. Right. And all women. Right. Although I, I'm not sure if white white women and men of color, they might be challenging each other for equal status in some cases, uh, depending on what the social situation yeah, is. Yeah, it depends on the situation, I would say, because it's just absolutely awful what, what, what I hear. And of course, anybody who doesn't conform mm-hmm. to the, the gender binary is going to be at the bottom. Right. I mean, I, I, I don't know what the hierarchy is, and I just think it's just it's just not. It's just stupid. I, I, it, the hierarchy doesn't make sense. I don't think it, it makes any logical I mean, it's, sense. It's there to assert power and maintain privilege. No, I, and, I, I agree. And and I guess what struck me most about my conversation with Autumn was how it impacted her growing up in her relationships, in particular with her parents. Right. And I really hoped that listeners would share that episode with families who have transitioning, you know, or questioning children or children who are, you know, certain that they're transgender, that they understand that the impact that they have in not being unconditional and not being accepting can really have long-term harm. Right. I think, yeah, it was Tom Digby's conversation i keep on bringing that one down i that 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 up again but you mentioned how there was an article with the butterfly the little boy who wanted the butterfly on the cheek uh-huh i would i would oh, the say face painting. The face painting right mm-hmm. where the parent is like no you can't have that you have to have a skull skull and crossbones yeah. instead instead of that that's really sad that those things really do affect a person later on in the future one of the things that came up was this Radio Lab episode. I keep on bringing Radio Lab, but here we go again. Recently, it just happened to be that around the same time that I heard Autumn's story, they had this series of episodes in Radio Lab where they talked about sex in general, right? Uh-huh. And they brought mentioned two people. One person, their name is Dana Zim, and Dana Zim, Dana Zim's story is that they identify as something called intersex, which I had no idea until I, I, I looked into this afterward. But so their pronoun is they. So it's not he, it's not she. They prefer to be referred to as they. And if you listen to, hopefully listeners would uh, just take a listen to this story. It's fascinating. They were born with something called ambiguous genitals. So at when the when when they were born the doctor asked the parents which one do you want to choose you you either go with male or with female and the father said make sure that he's a male so he was raised as a male but he went through surgery as a child and he didn't really remember this but only at the age of 50 did he then realize after doing research that he is that they are intersex so only then was he able to, was were they able to be more free so it's it's something that it was a really touching story it's it's it, it, it's fascinating i think uh listeners should listen to it for themselves but we can understand now that it's not something it, this gender binary is 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 just false it's not something as concrete as we were grow, grown up to believe and and also just being gender non-conforming like the fact that in the gender unicorn, who you're physically attracted to could be different from who you're emotionally attracted to. Right. And and so I guess my comment about that story 
would be, I hope that again, parents can listen to that and, and, and all of us can have just reflect that this person took 50 years to live their authentic, true life. Right. And how sad is it? And what a sense of loss in some ways it was to not be fully yourself for so many years, for half your life, more, maybe more than half your life, what could you have accomplished had you actually been supported and fully loved and accepted for those first 50 years? They, if you listen to their story, you'll see that, yes, of course it was a struggle. They didn't know, they didn't even know what they were. And they joined, a, I believe, a, a gay community and he and they identified as as gay for for a time, but again, only after fifty years did they realize that that's what it is. That that it, and and it's something that I'm sure that they're much more happier now than uh, than before knowing. And so, the, if we as a society are more accepting of this and not be so be so committed to this the myth of that gender binary, that we would make it better not just for them, but for everybody, because their lives are affected both economically and socially, and we interact with every all sorts of people. So it would make it would be better for all of us if we're more accepting. Yeah, I agree. I think that life would be so much richer if we weren't trying to always put people in boxes and categorize them and expect them to live within the defines of the that box and the expectations that we put upon them. Right. And then they're not trying to put upon themselves because of our expectations. Right. I mean, just growing up thinking of all, let's say I were to watch a movie and the movie was sad. Why should I feel ashamed that I should cry? Or 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 why should I feel ashamed that I should have what society considers uh, feminine emotions or something like that? Like that's that's something, that that's a tragedy that I hope. And and why should we cry? Because it's the first time we've seen ourselves represented on screen right. in a positive, rich, diverse, multifaceted way right. ever right. in our lives. That's, so those those are all things to think about. And hopefully it'll give our listeners some food for thought and initiate some interesting dialogue. And thank you for listening, listeners. And thank you, Michael, for joining me. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt. The mission of CanDoIt is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. CanDoIt helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. CanDoIt. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.